Well, welcome to Center Church. My name is Josh Miller. If you're a guest, we're really, really glad that you're here. Uh, you came on an incredible Sunday because for the last couple of weeks, we've been in the midst of something that we've called the Deep and Wide Initiative, okay? The Deep and Wide Initiative. Let me give you a little bit of context. Um, for three years, we as a church have been focusing on church health, man, on helping you grow in your relationship with God, on reaching people with the good news of the gospel, on shepherding well, on preaching the word of God. And as we've focused on church health, God has blessed us with with church growth. And if you look around, like we're pretty full. Now the 530 service has more space. So if any of you are looking for a move to the 530 service, now would be a great time to do that. Okay. But we are running out of room. And so we started looking for a larger facility that we could call home for a permanent facility that we could kind of plant a flag for the gospel in Charlottesville and do ministry for many, many years. And in his kindness, God opened that facility up. And I told you it's a 10,000 square foot building that's on 1.65 acres at the intersection of Westfield Road and 29 North. So it's only about two miles from here. It's a really, really strategic location. We're thrilled about it, really excited about it. So back in February, we launched the Deep and Wide Initiative, and our goal was to go deeper in discipleship and wider in mission. And so we had two goals, and, and you've been here, you've heard me say this a million times, but forgive me one more time, we had two goals. Goal number one was 100% participation, okay? We wanted everyone who calls Center Church home to participate. And just so you know, you almost never hit 100 100% participation in the church world, okay? Like, here's what happens in most churches. You know this, 20% of the people do 80% of the ministry, right? Like, that's just kind of how church works. And so, honestly, 100% participation was a more audacious goal than the money we wanted to raise. Like, if every single person who calls Center Church home, man, participated, that would be a huge answer to prayer. But honestly, that was intentional because, yeah, Deep and Wide is about generosity, and Deep and Wide is about getting, man, our first permanent facility. But more than anything, Deep and Wide is about you and me responding to the work of Jesus Christ. That is what Deep and Wide has been about. It's about you and me responding to the work of Christ with fresh commitment to discipleship and mission. Now, um, it's hard to calculate participation. It really is, because it's like, it's hard to know exactly how many people call this church home. You know, we, we've got our membership role, but then we've also got, I know a lot of you that what, you're not members yet, but you'd still say this is my church home. And so it's a little bit hard to figure out how to calculate percentage. So this is what we did. We looked at March and we said, okay, how many individuals or families gave financially in March to the ministry of Center Church to kind of make our ministry possible? And we had 140 individuals or families that gave in March. So we asked the question, what percentage of the people who normally give stretched and sacrificed to give to deep and wide? Okay, what percentage of that group of people stretched and sacrificed to give to deep and wide? And we didn't hit 100%. Churches almost never do. We actually exceeded 100%. We actually, yeah, I gotcha. We actually exceeded 100%. You're like about to be so bummed. I wouldn't do it to you like that. Okay, we, we have 140 individuals and families who give on a regular basis to make the ministry of Center Church happen. And guys, we had 159 individuals and families. <laughs> Pledge to deep and wide. So that, that puts us at 136% participation, okay? And that's 159 stories, okay? That's 159 stories of men and women and families, man, going on a journey of generosity with God. And I, I think one of my favorite stories of the whole thing comes from our college ministry. So on uh, Commitment Sunday, one of our college students really felt led by God to participate. 
And so he filled out a card for $100, and he, and he came up here, and he put it in the bucket. Praise the Lord. Um, the problem was he didn't have $100. And so he calls his parents up, and he's like, I need you to front me $100 so that I can participate in the initiative. And I thought, my friends also asked their parents for money in college. It was not to support their local church. It was to buy beer, okay? And so, man, just praise the Lord that that's what God is doing in our church, that we have college students saying, man, I want to call my parents to front me money so that I can participate in what God is doing. So, man, we are so, so thrilled about that. Okay, so goal number one, man, you guys did it. Awesome. We crushed it. Um, goal number two was to raise at least $250,000 in one-time gifts over and above normal giving by April 15, 2022. And we're going to use that money, man, to turn the building into a church and, you know, auditorium that seats 375 people, two-story kid space, the whole thing. And connected to that number, again, is 159 stories. It's 159 men and women and families who are walking with God and, man, and walking by faith and, and participating in sacrificial generosity. And, man, one of my favorite stories of all that I've heard um, is the story of a millennial couple who's been a part of our church for, for a couple years. And um, they came to Charlottesville for grad school. And when they first got connected to our church, I got to know them. And I'll just be real honest, and I think they would own this, like their marriage was in a pretty hard place. But through some pastoral counseling that we got to do, and just through the ministry of the church, and through the ministry of a missional community, and through serving teams, man, a couple years later, they have grown in some incredible ways. Like, they've just made some incredible strides, uh, man, in their marriage. And, uh, man, grad school's over, right? So they, they finished grad school, and so they're going to be moving on, which is just sort of the nature of our town. Uh, but, but they went ahead, and they gave $20,000 to Deep and Wide. Okay? They gave $20,000. Yeah, Susan wants to clap. I'll clap for that. <laughs> Um, and, and you know, I told you throughout that it's about equal faithfulness. It's not about equal amounts. But still, that's a significant gift for this family to make. So I thought, man, I just want to call up and, and see, like, what is going on? So I called the husband up, and I said, man, what is God doing in your heart that, that you would give a gift like this? And it was just so encouraging. I mean, kind of paraphrasing, he basically said, man, we love this church. We trust your leadership, and this money belongs to God. And so we wanted to give it. Even though they're not going to be here for, man, all that is this facility, man, they wanted to be a part of what God's doing here. And I just thought, man, that is so incredible. What a picture of what Deep and Wide is all about. It's just about responding to the grace of God in the gospel, okay? And there's so many other stories that I could tell. I just don't have time to, but God has done so much in and through our church that I've just loved this season. Um, and now, like I told you, $250,000 is a lot of money. Um, I mean, it's almost half of our annual budget. And we asked you to do this on top of normal giving. We said, hey, don't replace your normal giving. Like, do this on top of it so we can continue to do our normal ministry. And so it, it was a really audacious goal. Uh, but because of 159 stories, like the ones that I told you, we didn't just reach $250,000. We reached $415,362.70. Now... Now, I know what you're asking. Who gave 70 cents, right? And I, I don't know, right? But, but we counted it. My, my wife just said our daughter did, okay? Uh, but we counted it. The kids got it. The, the kids got involved, and we were so thrilled. Um, and another question that might come to mind is, man, what are we going to do with the extra money that came in? That's a good question to ask. Um, so let me explain to you kind of how we came up with the goal. The $250,000 goal was like a shoestring budget, like 
What is it going to take to make something that looks like an auditorium, to have something that resembles chairs, and to have something that, you know, is a kid's space without live electric wires everywhere, you know? Like, like what, what's it going to take to, to be able to do that? And so because of your generosity, we're actually going to be able to create, man, fun, engaging kid spaces and warm worship environments from day one. So we're going to be able to create a space that's going to invest in the next generation and help us reach more people and make deeper disciples. And so, man, I am so, so thrilled about that. So what this means, is that, man, we are full speed ahead on the building. Man, because of your sacrifice and because of your giving, there are no roadblocks to what we are trying to do. We are uh, scheduled to close on the building May 4th, and Lord willing, join me in prayer. Lord willing, we will move into that facility this fall, okay? So not that far from now. Yeah, this fall. And, and we'll just be able to welcome more people and preach the gospel and invest in the next generation and make disciples. And man, I, in just a second, I just want to pray and thank God. But I, this thought came to me, and it, it just really was powerful. When it comes to church, when it really comes to the Christian faith, you are always sitting in someone else's sacrifice. You ever thought about that? So right now, unless you moved with us from North Carolina, you are sitting in the sacrifice of the 37 people, man, who uprooted their lives and moved from North Carolina to Plant Center Church four years ago. And here's an incredible thought. Because of your sacrifice and because of your generosity in six months, there's going to be a whole new group of people that are going to be sitting in Center Church because of what you've done in this season. And so as your pastor, I just want to say thank you. I just want to say thank you for loving Christ and thank you for worshiping him with your generosity. Man, and I cannot wait to see what is in store because I think this is only the beginning of what God wants to do. Okay? So would you just join me in prayer and thanking God for all that he's done, and then we'll jump into Psalm 51. Lord God, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just filled with really a... I think an even increased sense of responsibility and stewardship. God, you're just doing something really unique here. And I thank you for all the people who have prayed and who have served and who have given to make this church possible. I thank you for all the lives you've changed. And I thank you for, man, all the generosity that we've seen. And God, I pray as we, we move forward into this building that you'd use it as a means of discipleship. Lord, the building isn't the goal. The building is the means to the goal of seeing more people saved, sanctified, and sent for your glory because you are worth it. So God, increase our faith that, that we would continue to press forward and believe that you can do more than we could ask or imagine and give us soft hearts and open ears as we look at your word. Pray all this in Christ's name, amen, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Psalm 51. You can meet me in Psalm 51. We're in a three-week series that is all about dealing with hard emotions, okay? That's all about dealing with hard emotions. The truth is we all experience hard emotions. The question is what do we do with them when we feel them? Some of us stuff hard emotions, right? We just stuff them down there. We don't want to deal with them. And unfortunately, that often leads to being emotionally numb, right? Not only can you not feel hard emotions anymore, you don't really feel any emotions. Man, others of us serve hard emotions, and we kind of let our hard emotions dictate truth. And we say, this is what is true, even if it's not in line with God's word. But the Psalms give us a biblical model for processing hard emotions, Okay, the Psalms give us a biblical model for processing hard emotions. And last week, Pastor Chris talked about the feeling of spiritual drought, something that man, many of us have experienced. And this week, we're going to talk about guilt, something that all of us have experienced. Okay, this week, we're going to talk about guilt, which is something we've all experienced. Um, have you ever been caught doing something that you weren't proud of? Right, I have. You know that feeling when, when what you were doing was exposed and all of a sudden you felt kind of differently about yourself and you had the sinking feeling in your stomach and maybe it was something for you that you're like, I'm not sure I can ever think about myself the same way. I'm not sure the people who found out are ever gonna look at me the same way. Well, that is what happened in King David's life. So Psalm 51 was written by King David after he was caught doing the worst thing that he ever did. 
He was exposed for committing adultery and murder and then trying to use his political power to cover the entire thing up. See, what David did was terrible. It was terrible. And he felt an incredible amount of guilt about it. And Psalm 51 is a divinely inspired account of how David responded to that guilt and how we should respond to guilt in our lives as well. And here's the big idea if you're taking notes. Guilt isn't fun, but it can be fruitful. Guilt isn't fun, but it can be fruitful. And Psalm 51 shows us how. So let's start by looking at the heading of Psalm 51 there in your Bibles. It says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So this is one of the few psalms that is pinpointed to its historical origin. So it was written after Nathan the prophet confronted David concerning his sin with Bathsheba. And if you want to read the entire account of that, you can do so in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. But then here's a quick summary. David was the king, and he was supposed to be at war, but instead he was at home on his rooftop deck. And while he was hanging out on his rooftop deck, he looked down from the the roof of his palace, and he saw his friend's wife Bathsheba undressing. And in that moment, rather than looking away, David chose to lust after Bathsheba. He gazed at her, he found her beautiful, he found her desirable, and so he sent for her, he slept with her, and she became pregnant. Okay, that's in the Bible. So if you thought that the Bible was a book of moral stories to follow, think again. Okay, don't follow that example. Now afterwards, David tried to hide his sin, and he was, he was pretty sophisticated in it. He said, you know what I'll do? I'll invite her husband and my friend Uriah back from the front lines for a romantic weekend with his wife. You know, they'll sleep together, and then when this baby is born, nine months from now, no one will be, you know, any the wiser. Everyone just assume that it is Uriah's child. Unfortunately for David, when Uriah came home, he was too noble to go in and spend a night with his wife while his comrades were fighting for their lives at war, and so he refused to go in. And so in response to this, David arranged to have Uriah killed in battle. He said, put Uriah in where the fiercest fighting is and then draw back from him. So just think about what a betrayal this is. Man, David using his political power, using his influence, man, to sleep with his friend's wife and then have his friend killed. Then Uriah was dead. David quickly married Bathsheba, positing himself as a compassionate friend. Let me come in. I want to support this widow. You know, I want to come and support this this woman who's lost her husband to cover the whole thing up. And from a human perspective, it worked. No one knew. No one knew what had happened. Everyone just thought King David was being a good and godly friend and king. But here's the reality, and this is what we all know. We can hide our sin from people, but we can't hide it from God. You can hide your browsing history from your spouse. You can't hide it from God. You can pay with cash, but you can't hide it from God. You can do it when you're traveling, but you can't hide it from God. You, think, you can think it in your head and never actually act on it, but you can't hide it from God. God knew what David had done, and it displeased him greatly, and so he sent the prophet Nathan to come and rebuke David publicly for his sin. You see, God is no respecter of persons. What that means is that God didn't care that David had political power. God didn't care that he was this great leader in the kingdom of Israel. He was going to call David to account even though he was a great leader of the nation. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where a teammate or a coworker or a family member gets away with stuff, right? They kind of get to do whatever they want because of their competence or their influence or their power, 
All right, that simply doesn't happen with God. God sent Nathan, and Nathan confronted David, publicly exposed David, exposed this sin for all that it was, and Psalm 51 is David's response, okay? So that's the setup for this psalm. That's where David is in his mind. Crushing guilt, humiliated before the entire nation. Everybody sees what he's done. This is what he says in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So after he was publicly exposed, David's first response was to turn towards God. David didn't hide any longer. He simply cast himself on the mercy of God. And if you'll notice, David didn't come with a resume. David didn't refer to anything positive about himself. He didn't say, well, I know I made a mistake, but I've been a good king for 10 years. I know I made a mistake, but I've given generously to your church. I know I've made a mistake, but I've been a good dad. He focused his entire attention on the character of God. He said, my only hope of being forgiven has everything to do with God and nothing to do with me. So he says, according to your steadfast love, according to your mercy, blot out my transgressions. And in that sense, David is a wonderful model for us. You see, when we sin, our tendency is to hide from God, isn't it? Man, to try to kind of build a defense of righteousness and say, well, that was bad, but this was good. And I don't feel like I can go to God in this moment because I feel, I feel distant from him. But here's the reality. What makes a person a Christian isn't that they never sin, it's what they do when they sin. What makes a person a Christian is not that they never sin, it's what they do when they sin. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are going to sin. You are, you are going to transgress God's law. And in that moment, what makes you different from the world is that you move towards the Lord and his mercy rather than away from it. Verse three, David said this, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You notice that David didn't downplay his sin or rationalize what he did. He didn't say, well, she shouldn't have been undressing on the top of her house, right? You made me with these desires, God, I can't help it. Right? He, he didn't rationalize, he didn't blame shift, he simply owned what he did. He said, I know my transgressions. He said, my sin is before me. Against you have I sinned and you are justified in your judgment. Eight times in this psalm, David referred to my transgression, my iniquity, or my sin. He took personal ownership for it. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In verse seven, David begins to plead for two things. Don't miss this. He pleads for forgiveness and renewal. Do you see that? He said, purge me, make me clean, hide your face from my sins, blot them out, make me whiter than snow. Man, that's forgiveness. God, I need to be cleansed of this thing that I've done. But he also said, man, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. That's renewal. You see, it's fascinating that David never said anything about sexual purity in this prayer. Ever thought about that? You'd think he'd be like, God, give me sexual restraint. Give me some accountability partners. 
Give me covenant eyes on my phone. Like, help me put this sin to death. And yet he doesn't. He asks for forgiveness and he asks for renewal. Why? Because he knew that sexual sin is a symptom, not the disease. He knew that sexual sin, like any sin, is a symptom, not the disease. We give way to sexual sin when we aren't full of joy and gladness in Christ. So David said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He knew that was the real way to deal with his temptation. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. He's saying, you don't just want religious ceremony from me. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So in verse 13, David turned his eyes toward others. Do you notice that? He wanted to be forgiven and renewed so that he could be the means of renewing and encouraging others. He said, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then my mouth will declare your praise. David wanted his guilt to be fruitful. And in many ways, it was. Psalm 51 is the second most famous psalm that he ever wrote. Countless saints throughout history have been led to repentance and restoration by this psalm. And David wrote it in response to his greatest mistake. So here's a powerful thought. Your greatest mistake can become your greatest ministry. Your greatest mistake can become your greatest ministry. Guilt isn't fun, but it can be fruitful. But for that to happen in your life and in my life, we need to learn three things from Psalm 51. What guilt is, what to do with it, and what the results are. Number one, what guilt is. Here's a definition of guilt that arises out of Psalm 51 and that I find helpful. You ready? Guilt is what you feel when you have transgressed God's law. Guilt is what you feel when you have transgressed God's law. You see that in this psalm. David repeatedly acknowledged that he volitionally transgressed the law of God. Verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Verse 4a, against you, God, have I sinned and done what is evil. Verse 4b, so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The words that David is referring to there in verse 4 are God's law, the law of the Old Testament. The judgment that David referred to is the judgment based on God's law, that he had transgressed it. David felt guilt because he knew he had transgressed the good and holy law of God. Now, the reality is every single person feels guilt. Every single person feels guilt. Because Romans 1 tells us that God created every single person with a conscience. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your religious uh, persuasion. God created you with a conscience. But different people feel different levels of guilt Because it's possible to sear your conscience. So think about it. If you sear your hand on a stove, do you know what happens to your nerves? They get damaged. If you sear your hand enough, you'll get to the point where you can't feel your hand anymore. Well, you could do the same thing with your conscience. If you continually suppress your conscience, it will become less and less sensitive. It's hard to lie to your spouse the first time. It's less hard the tenth time. 
It's hard to sleep with your partner the first time. It's much less hard the 10th time. Many people do this in college or as a young adult, right? So there's almost a culture of this in college and in young adulthood. Maybe this is you right now. You know you shouldn't be in that relationship. You know you shouldn't be drinking as much as you're drinking, going to that website or messaging that girl from high school. You know you shouldn't be doing it, but you're doing it. Your conscience is warning you and you're suppressing it. Maybe you're suppressing it with Netflix. Maybe you're suppressing it with food. Maybe you're suppressing it with workaholism, but you're suppressing your conscience. You're pushing it down. And here's the thing. Every time we suppress our conscience, every time you suppress your conscience, you do real spiritual damage to your soul. 1 Peter 2.11 says this, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Which wage war against your soul. Sin isn't neutral. Just as cancer attacks your body, sin attacks your soul. So let me ask you, would you say, I've got cancer, but I'm just going to ignore it while I'm a young adult and deal with it when I get married? No, you would never say that. Well, I've got cancer, but I want to have a college experience, so I'm not going to deal with my cancer while I'm in college, and then I'll deal with it when I get out. Now, that'd be ridiculous, and yet how many of us are doing that with our conscience? Yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm in college. Yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm a young adult. Yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but man, my wife and I are both working, and it's crazy. Yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but the kids are young and so hard. The truth is, there's always a reason in every season to deny your conscience. And every time that we suppress our conscience, we do real spiritual damage to our soul. Your conscience is a gift from God. And don't destroy it. The bad news is you can damage your conscience by suppressing it and violating it over time. The good news is you can also strengthen your conscience. The way that you strengthen your conscience is when you sit under the preached word of God. Now hear me, it's not just when you read the Bible. Because when you read the Bible, do you know what you can do? You can just skip over the things you don't like. Oh, let's read Psalm 23 again. Oh, Philippians 4.13. Oh, Lamentations 3. It's like when someone else is preaching, you have to deal with it, right? I mean, I'm the same way. Like, I, it's easy to just, oh, I like this book. I don't like that book. I like this principle. I don't like that principle. But when you're sitting under the preach word of God, there's an authority that's coming into your life that, that you kind of have to deal with. I was talking to um, a godly young woman in our church who told me that for the whole first year that she attended Center Church, she cried in every single service. And I was like, I don't know if I should be encouraged or discouraged by that. Um, <laughs> what was happening? Well, I don't know. There could have been a lot of things happening, but maybe what was happening was God was strengthening her conscience. And she was seeing the holiness of God more clearly. Maybe she was seeing her own sin more clearly. She was seeing the preciousness of Jesus so what's happened? Well, her conscience has been strengthened. Her vision has been clarified because she is sat under the ministry of the word of God. Guilt is an important emotion. It's not an easy emotion, but it's an important emotion because it alerts us that we've transgressed God's law and we need to make amends. Guilt isn't fun, but it can be fruitful. But here's the thing. Guilt can also be counterfeited. Guilt can be counterfeited and used by Satan as a weapon in your life. It's one of his favorite things to do. The scriptures say that Satan will often appear, masquerade as an angel of light in your life. He will counterfeit guilt and try to destroy you with what I will call false or ungodly guilt. So as I thought about this, as I talked to people, as I thought about my own life, let me give you four situations where you might be feeling ungodly guilt. This is counterfeit guilt that you need to reject because it is not 
that you've transgressed God's law. Here's letter A. You might feel ungodly guilt when you transgress your own law. When you transgress your own law, maybe you have certain expectations of yourself as a person, as a friend, as a spouse, as a mother, as a Christian. And when you fail to live up to your own expectations, you might feel an ungodly version of guilt. I feel guilty because my kids don't eat enough vegetables, because my house isn't clean enough or I haven't worked out this week. Stop and ask yourself the question, have I transgressed God's law or my own? Guys, here's the thing. God's law doesn't say your kids have to eat broccoli every night. It doesn't. Certainly doesn't say they have to eat kale. Okay? It just does. Not in there. It's no verse. Hear me, students. God's law doesn't say you have to have a 3.8. It doesn't. Your grade point average has nothing to do with your righteousness. Your extracurricular activities have nothing to do with your righteousness. God did not say you shall be in an acapella group. In fact, he maybe said, don't be an acapella group. <laughs> it just doesn't say that. Here's one. Here's one for all you parents out there. It is not morally wrong to have two loads of laundry to do. Right? But don't you feel that way? Like, don't you feel this guilt of like, I should be doing so? You've got to stop and say, man, is this from the Lord or is this from the evil one? Now, it's good to have goals, sure. But man, there's a difference between, you know what? I didn't get to the gym as many times as I wanted to this week and I'm bummed by that. And like the... And like the feeling of weight on your soul because you didn't do something. So when you feel that guilt, ask yourself, if I transgress God's law or my law? Here's another example when you might feel ungodly guilt. When you transgress another person's law. When you transgress another person's law. Other people have expectations of you, don't they? Right? When you don't meet their expectations, you might feel ungodly guilt. Maybe you don't give your kids what they want and they're mad at you. Right? You don't work the hours that your boss prefers and he makes comments about it. You don't visit your parents as much as they'd like. Right? When someone else is disappointed with you, it's easy to feel ungodly guilt. But we have to stop and ask the question, have I transgressed God's law or another person's law? Here's what I found in my own life. A fear of transgressing another person's law will lead me to transgress God's law. Because I'm more afraid of disappointing other people than I am about sinning against the Lord. Here's the third way you might feel ungodly guilt. When you transgress cultural laws. When you transgress cultural laws. When I say cultural laws, I'm not referring to like the speedy limit. The speed limit. I'm referring to cultural values in our society that are treated by, treated like laws. So for example, our culture says that you should affirm particular lifestyles, you should raise your kids in a particular way, and you should post about particular issues on social media. And if you don't, you might be attacked or villainized. And in many ways, our culture has weaponized guilt. Our culture has weaponized guilt and uses it as a club to force people to get in line and to accept unfounded and harmful cultural values. They're harmful and they're unfounded. They're not true. And so we have to ask the question, is this God's law that I've transgressed or is this simply a cultural law that I've transgressed? Here's the last one. You might feel ungodly guilt when you're connected to someone who transgresses God's law. You might feel what you could call collateral guilt. So when someone close to you sins, especially if it's an egregious sin, you can feel collateral guilt. So at times, a child will feel collateral guilt because of an abusive parent. A spouse will feel collateral guilt because of something their spouse does. You might feel collateral guilt because of your family of origin, your ethnicity, or your economic background. But that isn't godly guilt. Godly guilt is what you feel when you have transgressed God's law. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says it this way. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Just as you can't inherit righteousness from another person, you cannot inherit guilt from another person. Right? So that's what guilt is. It's the feeling we have when we have volitionally, personally transgressed God's law. That is what David did. Okay, which is distinct from ungodly guilt that Satan counterfeits and tries to use in our lives. So here's the next question. Number two, what should you do with guilt? What should you do with guilt? Our culture says when you feel guilt, you should reject it. You should speak positively over your life. You should call to mind all the reasons why you're a caring and considerate person. And you should surround yourself with people who will affirm you. But God's word says when you feel guilt, you should respond to it. You shouldn't reject it. You should respond to it. And Psalm 51 shows us two ways that we respond to guilt. Here's letter A. You take personal responsibility. You take personal responsibility. David took personal responsibility for his sin. And eight times, eight times he referred to my transgressions, my iniquity, or my sin. He took ownership. He didn't blame other people. He didn't blame his circumstances, his upbringing, or his genetics. A mature Christian takes responsibility for his sins. A mature Christian takes responsibility for his sins. That is simple to say. It is very hard to do. Right? It's very hard to do because it's a lot easier to blame someone or something else for my sin. Especially when it comes to your kids. I mean, one of my kids had a hard time adjusting to elementary school. And, and the teacher called and very graciously asked us to work on some things. Do you know what I immediately started doing? Well, it's not his fault. It's obviously your fault or the classroom's fault or the school's fault. And it's like, no, maybe it's his fault. Well, no, Johnny was hungry and Johnny was tired and Johnny missed his nap. Welcome to the rest of Johnny's life. Right? Like, okay, let me calm it down for a second. <laughs> Guys, hear me. Parent, and I'm a parent, so this is like my business, but your business too. We don't do our kids any favors when we make excuses for their sin. In fact, we do the opposite. We harden their hearts to the gospel. We say, no, it's never your fault. It's my fault or their fault or the circumstances fault. We make it harder for them to do what David did. That's not love for your kids. Love for your kids is, nope, that's sin. I still love you. You need a savior. Here's Jesus. But it's so easy as parents to just always dismiss the sins in our kids' lives and to never deal with them, maybe because we're afraid of them being upset with us. It goes back to that ungodly guilt of if my kids are mad at me, I'm a bad parent. Can I, real quick, your kid is going to have a lot of friends that get one mom and one dad. God has not called you to be your kid's friend. He's called you to be your kid's parents. And nobody else can do that in their lives. So for the good of your kid's soul, don't excuse their sin. Be gracious, be kind, be honest. Okay, the Bible is gracious and kind and honest with us. All right, so parents need to do it with kids. You know what else we need to do in the church? We need to not excuse one another's sins. Because you ever been in this? You can always find someone that is going to tell you what you did actually wasn't wrong. Like, well, no, because you had this going on or that going on. And like, we need to speak the truth to one another in love, right? Not, not being unkind, not being harsh, but just saying like, no, you're right. That was sinful. Like, it wasn't your wife's fault. It was your fault. Let's like go to the Lord. Let's repent and let's find renewal. We're all prone to, to blame shifting. We all are. I am. I'm sure you are. It's an ancient problem. I mean, it's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. When they were caught in their sin, Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the snake. We've just been doing it 
ever ever since. But the first step in dealing with guilt is taking personal responsibility for it. We simply have to admit it's not my parents' fault, my peers' fault, my spouse's fault, my circumstances' fault, my professor's fault. It's certainly not God's fault. It's my fault. I chose to sin. I did it. Like David said, my transgressions, my sin. Listen, a victim mindset is a losing mindset. A victim mindset is a losing mindset. You'll never see victory over sin if it's always someone else's fault. You just won't. If you want to experience victory over sin, and I want that for you, if you want to walk in greater freedom and greater Christ-likeness, and I want that for you, it starts with taking ownership for our sin. So that's the first thing that we do with guilt. Man, we take personal responsibility for ways that we have transgressed God's law. Here's step two. You seek or you repent and seek forgiveness. You repent and seek forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness are shot through this psalm. It's everywhere. Verse one, have mercy on me. Verse two, cleanse me from my sin. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop. Verse 10, created me a clean heart. The English word repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to do a 180 degree turn. So what that means is repentance involves turning away from sin and turning towards God. It's both. It's like how David wanted to be forgiven and renewed. He not only asked for forgiveness, but renewal. To experience victory over sin, we must turn away from sin and towards something better in Christ. An old Puritan pastor named Thomas Chalmers pointed out that the human heart is a bit like a vacuum. Not only do we have to take the sinful things out of the vacuum, but we have to put the glories of Christ into the vacuum, and if we don't, it'll simply suck in something else sinful. Right? So we have to remove, we have to repent of the sin, and we have to fix our eyes on Christ. So what, is it, what does this look like practically? What means we turn away from being selfish and we turn towards a life of service. We turn away from isolation and we turn towards meaningful community. We turn away from being a spiritual consumer and we turn towards being a spiritual contributor. We need a vision of Jesus that is better than our sin. When our vision of Jesus gets really, really big, sin starts to look really, really small. But when our vision of Jesus is really, really small, sin looks really, really big and tempting. So first we take ownership. Then we repent and seek forgiveness. So what are the results? When we do that, what does God do? What are the results? Number three, what are the results of your repentance? Well, there are two results of repentance I want us to see in this text. Here's here's number one, forgiveness. Forgiveness. This is the good news of Christianity. David repeatedly asked God to forgive him, to cleanse him, and to wash him. What David asked God to do in his life, the New Testament promises God will do in your life because of Christ. What David asked God to do, the New Testament promises God will do because of Christ. 1 John 1, 8, 9, some of my favorite verses in the Bible says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse, or he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, when you repent and you seek forgiveness, God promises to forgive you. He promises. Think about that. You don't, have to, you don't have to hope that he does. He promises to do it, to wash you, to purge you with hyssop, to blot out your iniquities, and to make you white as snow. The death of Christ on the cross is sufficient to cleanse you from all of your sins, past, present, and future. If David, the adulterer and the murderer, can be forgiven of his sins, then you can be forgiven of your sins. If Peter, the denier, can be forgiven of his sins, then you can be forgiven of your sins. If Paul, the murderer and persecutor of the church, can be forgiven of his sins, then you can be forgiven of your sins. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It's above my desk at my house. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know what that means? It means like every morning an Amazon package arrives at your front door labeled God's mercy. It's there every day. You're like, I didn't know I ordered this. I, I guess I need it. Like every single day it shows up at your door and it says God's mercy. All right, bear with me. You remember that scene in Harry Potter when the owls are trying to deliver the mail to Harry and Mr. Dursley is trying to keep him away? You track it with like 75% of you with me, the other 25% hang in there. Okay. And they're just like coming and Dursley's doing everything he can. He's like boarding up all the windows. He's locking all the doors. He's doing everything he can to keep this mail away and it won't stop coming. And the owls keep coming. Eventually the whole house gets full, filled up by these letters. That is God's mercy in your life. It comes in every window. It comes in every door. It comes in every mail slot. It comes under the door. You cannot out God's grace. It's the great good news of the gospel. It's what makes Christianity different than every other religion is that Christianity is honest about how jacked up we are. And it says, look, you are a sinner, but Christ is a great savior. Your sin is a big deal, but the cross is a bigger deal. Every single morning, the mercy of God comes into your life. When you repent through Christ, this is what God does. He forgives you. Here's the second result of repentance, mission. Mission. In verse 13, David says this, after I am forgiven and renewed, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You see, when you repent and are restored, you're able to commend repentance to others. Oftentimes, your greatest mistakes become your greatest ministry. I said it before, but Psalm 51 is the fruit of David's greatest mistake. Think about it. If you're struggling in your marriage, who do you want to meet with? You want to meet with the other couple who struggled in their marriage and has grown. You don't want to meet with that couple that's like, we had a fight once in 2013. You're like, God bless you. I don't want to meet with you, right? Like, Nobody wants to meet with that couple, right? We don't even know what they're doing. Anyway, uh, if, if you're in debt, if you're anxious, if you're struggling with sexual purity, if you're apathetic, you want to meet with someone who understands what it's like to struggle, but through repentance and faith has made progress, right? I saw a powerful picture of this a couple of weeks ago in our church. Um, one of our staff members organized a women's night of repentance for our college ministry, our college students. And our staff member invited five women from our church uh, to share the role that repentance plays in their life for our our college students. And afterwards, one of our, our students said, I look up to every woman that was on that panel, and I had no idea that they have to regularly repent of sin. Wow. Powerful. Guilt isn't fun, but it can be fruitful. When guilt drives us to repentance, it reminds us of our great need for a Savior and of the remarkably good news of the gospel. Here's the good news of the gospel. That knowing all of your sin, Jesus Christ willingly shed his blood so that you could be made white as snow. Friend, God could never be disenamored with you because he was never enamored in the first place. God knew what he was getting when he chose to place his love upon you. God knew what he was getting when he chose to send his son to die for you. And it's that reality that makes it safe to take your guilt to the Lord. You don't have to hide from him. You don't have to try to bury it. You don't have to blame shift and try to rationalize it. You can go to the Lord and through Christ find forgiveness and renewal and then be the means of calling others to forgiveness and renewal as well. And so what I want to do is I just want to invite you to bow your heads with me. I just want to close with a time of reflection. The Lord just, I just really felt him putting this on my heart this week. 
I believe that there's some of you that are here today that are truly children of God. But you're carrying guilt that you don't need to carry anymore. You're carrying guilt over something that you've done or something that was done to you. You're carrying guilt because you violated your own expectation. And the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse you. And so I just want to invite you today to lay it down. Whatever that thing is that the Spirit's bringing to mind right now, lay it down. Jesus knows about it. Jesus died for it. You don't have to carry it anymore. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not sure, I don't know you, but I know something about you. It's that you know what guilt feels like. I know what guilt feels like. My question to you is, what is keeping you from being forgiven today? Friend, you can hide from people, but you cannot hide from God. He sees all of it, and as a holy judge, he will judge your sin. As one pastor put it, on our own, we are like a spider over the top of an active volcano holding on by one strand of web, ready to plunge into the fury of God's wrath. That is your life outside of Christ. But because God is a good and gracious God, he has made a way for you to be saved. And it's through the work of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is sufficient to cover your sin and to relieve you of your guilt. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, all of the work has been done by God. And it's simply your responsibility to respond. To take ownership of your sin, to turn from it, and to seek forgiveness in Christ. And I want to call you to do that today, right now. Don't carry your guilt a minute longer than you need to. Say to the Lord, I take ownership for my sin, and I turn from it, and I'm asking you to forgive me because of the work of Christ. I want to be my Savior and my Lord. I need to be forgiven. If that's you, I want you to do that right now. And if today you have asked God to forgive you of your sin through Christ for the very first time, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to do this for me. Grab that Connect card, put your name on it, email, and just write forgiven in the questions box. And turn that in at the end of the service so that we can follow up with you, so that we can celebrate and so that we can help you walk with Christ. You remain in prayer. Our band is going to come and they'll lead us to respond in worship.